These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. Our story until now, from the emergence of writing in 3000 BCE to the death of Rimsin of Larsa sometime around 1760, has focused almost exclusively on the regions of Sumer and Akkad, the lower portion of the Tigris and Euphrates River valleys, where the rivers come very close together and, in the old days, intermingled. But in the last episode, we brought that history out as far as it will take us, to the reign of Hammurabi. In the centuries that follow, our political map is going to expand from the lower Mesopotamian region to take up the entirety of what is sometimes called the Fertile Crescent, including the upper reaches of the two rivers and the people that live on and around them. For the most part, this means the people who live in the modern-day nation of Syria and the broad region now known as Kurdistan, which stretches across borders into Turkey, Syria, and northern Iraq. Around the region where the city of Akkad was, near where Babylon has recently appeared in our story, the two rivers diverge. The Tigris continues its path more or less directly northwards, while the Euphrates veers northwest into modern-day Syria and even into southern Anatolia, the peninsula of modern-day Turkey. We will look at both places over the next few episodes, but it is up the Tigris River that we travel today, up to the city of Asher, which will become the center of the Assyrian people and their multiple successful empires. Pastoralists and nomads would have crossed through this area since the introduction of humans into the region tens of thousands of years ago, but our first look at settlements in Assyria comes around the time that writing is being invented down in Sumer, and may well have been part of that process. If you'll recall from the very first episode, Enmerkar and Arata, which is believed to have taken place sometime around 3000 BCE, writing was said to be invented as a way of communicating reliably over long distances with the North Iranian city of Arata. This is probably fictional as we know that the very earliest writing actually seems to come from the need to maintain accounting records in the increasingly complex economy of early Sumer. What also seems to be the case is that at the same time the economy is growing in complexity, it's beginning to expand on a geographic level as well, the two of which together likely spurred the development of writing. For the few hundred years around the time of Enmerkar and later mighty Gilgamesh, the city of Uruk in particular became prosperous enough to establish a number of trading colonies in both Iran and Assyria. When Uruk declined following a period of drought sometime around 2800 BCE, and note that all these dates are very fuzzy and could well be off by a few hundred years in either direction, these trading colonies were largely left to fend for themselves. The towns shrank, as the farmlands, never as fertile as in the south, became even more barren, and many communities reverted to pastoralism for a large part of their needs or completely abandoned their towns in favor of nomadism. Some estimates say that of the towns that survived, most lost around 75% of their population, and great tracts of land, already far from intensively cultivated, went fallow or turned to sheep pastures. This wasn't the end of settlement in the region, but it would be centuries before the few remaining agriculturalists began again to produce enough surplus to compete with their pastoral neighbors. 
Many of the towns that did survive seem to have been religious centers, an indication that it was in part the development of fixed religious buildings that helped to cause urbanization in Mesopotamia as a whole in the prehistorical period. Near the end of the early dynastic period, around 2400 BCE, a few hundred years of good conditions had stimulated the growth of the Assyrian region to a certain extent, though it remains quite sparsely populated. Many towns, such as Asher and Nineveh, have grown to a modest size. In this early period, the people may be connected in the broader trade network with ties to North Iran, Anatolia, Mari and Ebla in Syria, and down the Tigris River to Sumer, though details are very sparse. History really begins in this region with Sargon the Great around 2300 BCE when he establishes Asher as a northern administrative center following his conquests up the Tigris, and then more extensively under Sargon's grandson Naram-Sin, who expands the empire further and transforms the northern town of Nineveh near modern-day Mosul in Iraq as his northernmost administrative garrison. The Akkadians transform the region, and soon the Assyrians universally speak the Akkadian language and identify culturally with Akkad. This political affiliation comes to an end with the fall of the Akkadian Empire, but the cultural changes persist. The Assyrians are now definitely worshipping a version of the Sumerian pantheon of gods and writing in a dialect of Akkadian cuneiform. The cities are much smaller than down in the Sumer, owing to the lower agricultural productivity of land in the region, but in many things they follow the Akkadian model of life, with their own modifications as they see fit. With the rise of Ur, there is some debate as to exactly how tied in the Assyrian region was with Sumer, but clearly the city of Asher had submitted to a certain degree to the administration in Ur, but equally clearly they had broad practical independence to act as they wished. Whatever the case may be, our story properly begins in the year 2025, a few years even before the end of the dynasty under Ibi-Sin, as the final few kings of Ur are beginning to buckle under the weight of the Amorite invasions and walling off sections of the empire, abandoning the north to its fate. That fate would actually prove to not be so horrible, all things considered. The region of Assyria would continue to be governed by the city of Asher under a new set of independent kings, beginning with Puzzar Asher I, though he isn't the start of the dynasty, in fact claiming to be the 30th in a long line stretching back to the early Akkadian conquests or even before. Why Assyria was able to maintain ethnically Akkadian rulers when so much of the rest of the world became Amorite is unclear. Perhaps the relative poverty of the region made it less attractive to nomads seeking wealth, and perhaps the relatively large portion of Assyria's population that was already pastoral meant there was less room for Amorites to come in and fill that niche. The fact is that though we have a long kings list both before and after this period, all the kings before Puzzar Asher I are nothing but names, and even these first few kings leave only slightly more mark on history. Though the city of Asher is now independent, it isn't very clear that much has changed for the city. 
It holds a very, very loose grasp over a roughly circular region on the map, about a hundred miles in radius, but this is more a cultural boundary for the people who would come to call themselves Assyrian, as well as something of a geographic term, more than a political reality. The city itself exercised direct political control over nothing but the city and its immediate environs, which perhaps covered somewhere between five and 8,000 people, maybe as many as 10,000 people later on in the old Assyrian period. But these early rulers looked at their modest town and developed a strategy to make the most of what they had. They didn't have many people, they didn't have a strong military, and they didn't have too many natural resources. But what they did have was a hardy spirit and a good location along the trade routes of the Near East. And from about 2000 BCE onward, the people of the city of Asser began to establish trading colonies in other parts of the Near East, in North Akkad, in North Iran, and most substantially in central Anatolia. This is an important historiological note, since the early history of the city of Asher itself would largely come to be erased by the city's expansions during the prosperity of the later and Neo-Assyrian empires. Not on purpose, but just as the people got wealthier in later centuries, they would knock down the older buildings and replace them with much grander ones. Which means that a lot of our sources for this period come from the Karams, which was the name for the Assyrian trading districts in central Anatolia. And the largest single source comes from a particular Karam called Karam Kanesh by the Assyrians, though it also happens to be famous as the source of the very first written documents in any Indo-European language, since the Hittites would later occupy the same spot under the name Kultepe. The Koltepe texts from Karam Kanesh are a tremendous resource, with tens of thousands of documents detailing commercial transactions and daily life within the Assyrian community. This provides very little detail on the politics of the city, but it also shows us that for many people, the game of kings back home may not have always been very significant though it could also indicate the degree to which the small town of Asser was heavily trade-focused and had relatively boring domestic politics. We see merchants, slaves, wives, craftsmen, priests, and many more people all trying to make their profits and manage their own lives. The focus is heavily on merchants, but for a city of less than 10,000 to be meaning at least 30 karams around Anatolia, probably 10 more in Syria and Akkad, and an unknown number that are speculated to be in Iran, surely a large portion of the city is in fact represented by this merchant class. Assyria itself, in this age, produced almost nothing. There was enough food from agriculture and pastoralism to feed modestly-sized cities in good years, but very little of use for export, not even the reeds and clay that the southerners were able to export so successfully. And the only thing they did have was wool from the many sheep that roamed around the hills. And so they very self-consciously appear to have gone about becoming the best weavers in the world, developing new weaving fashions and skills, as well as stealing greedily from everywhere they traded with. And these high-quality textiles formed the seed of mercantile activity in the Assyrian trading network. 
Initially, these textiles found a market in Anatolia due to their exceptional quality, where merchants exchanged them for gold and silver, both of which are mined in Anatolia. The silver would pass again through Asser and then down the Tigris River, where it would be used in the silver-based Sumerian economy to purchase all sorts of useful goods, but most critically, more wool, cloth, and textiles, since it would soon come to pass that Assyria itself was unable to produce nearly as much clothing as was demanded by the Anatolian markets. Asher appears to have never adopted the mass-produced factory-scale weaving industry that occasionally appeared in Sumer, at least not in this period, and all their high-quality textiles were the products of the women of a household, who could, on average, generate about 25 finished textiles per year per household. Tens of thousands of textiles were sold to the Anatolians each year, though, and while the Assyrian clothing was the luxury brand of the day, the vast majority of it had to be purchased from Sumer and resold by Assyrian merchants to meet the demand of the Anatolians. The gold from these purchases went east to the gold-based economy of northern Iran. But there was only one major export from there, a product of critical strategic importance for every advanced civilization of the Bronze Age. Tin. Bronze, for those unaware, is an alloy of copper and tin, requiring about 10-20% to 20 of the final product to be tin. But tin is found nowhere in Mesopotamia itself, and only in very small amounts in Iran, mines that were all used up centuries before the modern era, and in fact their precise location is heavily debated among historians of mineralogy. The classical world was forced to get their tin from such exotic locations as Western Europe or Southeast Asia, across massively difficult trade routes, and the ability to get some small amount of tin for a certain time during the Middle Bronze Age from the more accessible mountains of Iran allowed the merchants of Asher to send a critical resource to Anatolia and Sumer in exchange for even more wealth in return. Within a generation, this trade route had begun to occupy the attention of nearly the entire city, and large portions of Asher's population would be away at one of the many colonies at any one time. The large number of Karams in Anatolia even began to see trade among themselves, as the merchants became moguls of the intra-Anatolian trade in wool and copper, as well as bronze, tin, textiles, gold, and silver. Nearly all of this trade was conducted over land on the backs of donkeys, with men both free and slave walking the entire distance. This meant that each journey was a massive investment in both time and resources, and a single expedition could take a decade to pay off. This led naturally to a number of developments both socially and financially. On the financial side, as early as 1920 BCE, we have evidence of what may well be the world's first joint stock venture, an enterprise which entrusted 15 kilograms of gold from multiple parties to an experienced trader for a period of 10 to 12 years. Not all that different in concept from the joint stock companies that financed oceanic trade during the European Age of Exploration some 3,000 years later. 
But with such extensive transit times, it made sense for many Assyrians to simply settle into Akaram on a permanent or semi-permanent basis and live there as the branch office of the main corporation. These corporations were family affairs, but family in Asher could be defined quite broadly after a few generations. In any case, it's primarily from these merchant colonists that we can speak to the details of Assyrian daily life. Children were fairly rare in the colonies. Typically, wives would stay in Asher, but some Assyrian women did follow their husbands to the colonies, and some Assyrian men would take local wives, usually in addition to the one back home. But naturally, there were some kids, though we have little evidence for early childhood directly, since the smallest children weren't writing very much about their experiences. Infant mortality was, as everywhere in the pre-modern world, absolutely horrifying, but the average woman seems to have had three to six children survive to adulthood. In most households, child care was the responsibility of the mother primarily, assisted by other women in larger households or by female slaves in wealthier homes. As girls grew up, they would begin to emulate their mothers and begin to assist in the woman's responsibilities until it came time to marry. Legally, marriage was an economic contract, much as it was down in Sumer, but in practice it could range from purely pragmatic to purely love-based, depending on the situation and people involved. Nearly all married Assyrian women managed the household, cared for children, and wove textiles in the home for use by the household or for export. Beer making was another household industry, though whether all households made their own beer or if a few made it for a wider community is not always clear. For very poor girls, being sold into slavery was a very real possibility, and very high-status girls, typically first daughters of wealthy families, could enter the priesthood, which would prevent them from marrying and allow them to live as an independent household. It isn't clear what these priest women were doing. We know very little about cult practice this early on, but they would have been venerating a modified version of the Sumero-Akkadian pantheon with, with the local god Asher as the supreme deity. Asher in Assyria takes much the same role as Marduk would in Babylon, and indeed in later Assyrian versions of the Enuma Elish, the god Marduk is completely replaced by Asher. But these independent priest women are a good source of legal documents that prove men and women were in fact treated equally under the law. Not in the culture, mind you, since there was a very strong culturally enforced separation of the two sexes. But a woman, for example, could divorce on equal grounds as a man, own property should she become an independent household, and while a man's sons would inherit both a man's assets and debts, the woman would receive their shares of inheritance before any debts were paid off and were not saddled with those debts. Of course, this last, while a legal advantage, is testament to the lesser social role women played, since they could not typically be expected to have enough independent wealth to pay off debts. As for the boys, they would typically follow their father's profession, though only one son was usually required to do so, typically the oldest, the rest had the option to join another trade if they could find an apprenticeship. 
Interestingly, the Assyrian dialect used a far simpler writing system, though still based off Akkadian cuneiform, one that featured only perhaps 150 to 200 unique signs, rather than perhaps 900 of proper Akkadian. The Eduba schools also seem to have been either completely unknown or far less common, with writing instruction taking place in smaller private contexts. This means that while there were fewer professional scribes than farther south, many more Assyrians were personally literate, including most merchants and some craftsmen. Apparently, handwriting is also poorer among these less formally educated men, and more spelling mistakes are made. But the more widespread literacy allowed the fairly complex Assyrian economy to function without the massive scribal class of Sumer, and allowed a much wider variety of people to be writing, and thus having their words preserved for future historians. Most people are farmers and herdsmen, just like everywhere in this age, though due to the poor farmland, there are relatively more herders than in the south. There are also a good assortment of craftsmen, especially as trade volume grows over time and more resources can be imported. There was no formal social distinction, except between free men and slaves, and anyone had the same rights as anyone else, though there are, of course, references to big men and small men based on their respective wealth and social standing that affects their political power in the city assembly. The lower class of society was slaves. Slaves throughout Mesopotamia came from either war captives or unpaid debts and were sold frequently in markets or even used as payments for other debts and taxes. Sometimes those unpaid debts would be paid by the debtor through a period of service, or sometimes the debtor would sell their children into slavery, either for payment of debts or even just for a one-time payment. The slaves were gender segregated, with men pressed into manual labor, while female slaves were called amtum, a word that literally means second wife, and they would carry out the full range of duties that would be expected from a free wife, from household chores to birthing heirs, though questions of inheritance involving multiple mothers became very complex legal matters when the head of household died without a sufficiently detailed will. In this period, the average price for a healthy adult male slave was around 30 shekels, or approximately half a pound of silver. For context, I haven't come across wage figures for Assyrian free men, but down in Sumer and Akkad, we see laborers being paid around one shekel per month, plus varying amounts of grain. A female slave in good condition was worth only 20 shekels on average. In southern Mesopotamia, debt slaves typically had a certain amount of value they were expected to earn for their masters before they could be freed. It's unclear if there was any similar mechanisms in old Assyria for a slave to earn his own manumission. But mostly, what we know about are the merchant families who dominated the economy of Asher. In a merchant family, the father would be based in Asher, with the oldest son based in whatever karam the family business was most used to trading in. The younger sons and lesser branches of the family would be agents of the business, traveling to and from the colonies or managing affairs in the colony to get goods for the caravans. They would be aided in this by a modest number of slaves. 
These trading companies were supported initially by wealthy entrepreneurs, but soon enough the temple priests and members of the king's household were also sponsoring merchants, either with directions to make particular purchases or simply for a share of the profits. The king was also making money from every import that passed through the city gates, and with so much of his income coming from trade, was well incentivized to continue supporting the Assyrian merchant class. Not every merchant was uniformly successful, however. Within the Karams, there arose a second class of Assyrian merchants who lacked the resources to put together a caravan to return profitably to Assur, or perhaps some of them were lesser sons trying to establish themselves independently. These men used the capital they did possess to ply the intra-Anatolian trade routes. Some were no doubt successful in this, but many of them became stuck in the Karams, coming to integrate more closely with the Anatolian natives, and some even falling into debt to more wealthy natives. This group of failed merchants soon became such a problem that the Karams needed to create special laws to protect them and give them special legal status to hide from their creditors. On the other side of this coin, the locals who did business with the colonial Assyrians would in some cases become quite wealthy, and many of them in later decades were able to begin their own regional trading businesses themselves that came to compete with the Assyrians in Anatolia. For the men who remained successful international traders, the vast wealth they accumulated would go towards supporting the largest and nicest household they could afford, typically both a personal residence in the Karim and a family home in Asher. By the 1850s, after 150 years of northern mercantile dominance, the size and grandeur of these houses magnified tremendously, which will set the stage for the political developments that will come next episode. But in a more prosaic sense, brought pride and happiness to the merchant families who managed over multiple generations to succeed in life. But for those who spent half or even their whole lives in the Karam, managing two households became taxing. Assyrian culture was generally monogamous to a much greater extent than Sumerian culture was. But as it became more and more common for the men working for years in Anatolia to take local mistresses while their wives stayed at home, bigamous marriage was eventually made legal, so long as the two wives were in separate regions. That is, the Anatolian wife would stay in Anatolia, and the Assyrian wife would stay in Assyria, and never the two would meet. This was in addition to any number of slave concubines a man might keep, as well as widespread religious prostitution in many temples and more economic prostitution in the marketplace. While a wealthy man was spoiled for options on what could be charitably called the romantic front, the costs of these could mount quickly, as each woman would be owed a house and living expenses, and under most circumstances the extra children were owed shares in the inheritance. As for the women, the long-term absence of the men in their lives gave them increased authority to act independently in society. While the feminine social role was always within the house, the wives of wealthy absent men were often seen engaging in contracts, making loans, and participating in trade of both goods and people on a scale greater than required simply for maintaining the household. In other words, these ladies were hustling. 
Indeed, some of these women could even read the simplified Assyrian cuneiform characters, as evidenced by letters back and forth to their husbands about all manner of domestic issues, from arranging marriages to requesting larger allowances. The extended absence of a father could also produce very real household strains, such as a particularly poignant letter from a man named Asher Idi, a grandfather raising his absent son's children. The children have apparently rejected the money and attention Asher Idi had spent on them and fled the house to travel to their father in Karam Kanesh. The grandfather seems to feel quite put out at being so rejected, and the children long for their absent father so much as to take a very difficult and lengthy journey to be reunited with him. As men grow older, they would eventually look to retire on the support of their children. The old man would return to the family home and help care for the children, assist and advise on business matters, and generally relax possibly engaging more in the social and political life of the capital. For women, there was less of a transition, since most women were economically dependent on a man in their life anyway, either father, husband, or adult sons, and their retirement consisted more of simply reducing the amount of weaving, cleaning, and childcare they handled each day. Poorer households, of course, were less likely to see retirement until sickness and age made continued work impossible, and eventually all people, rich and poor, would pass away. At death, bodies were buried and the family would go into a period of mourning. It was believed that the spirits of the dead would be able to appear as ghosts in dreams and visions, and there are even letters from wives in the family home in Asher to their distant husbands complaining that the entire household is receiving vengeful dreams because the man of the house is not sending enough money to perform the rituals properly, or because there was no appropriate male relative present in the capital to perform them. But when appeased, these spirits would aid the general fortune of the family, and because of the desire to keep them properly supplicated and to benefit from their spiritual power, important ancestors would often be buried in the floorboards of the house. This had the somewhat amusing side effect of making the largest estates very difficult to sell, since prospective home buyers seem to have been intimidated by the thought of dealing with another family's ancestor ghosts. The family business would survive the death of any patriarch, however, and over generations, the corporation would grow as the family tree branched out, often coming to include native Anatolians and a large number of cousins acting as agents throughout the Middle East. For all their financial innovations, however, the idea of a corporation was never in this period extracted from the concept of family, and indeed, whenever merchants referred to their enterprise, they used the word betzum, which also means house and household. Abum means both boss and father, ahum means brother or partner, and suharu means both younger family member and employee. Capital could be gathered from outside sources and profits owed to outside investors, but the economic unit of Assyrian society and Mesopotamian society in general was always the household, even when that unit expanded tremendously beyond what it had originally been understood to be. 
However, despite the familial nature of the corporate enterprise, wealth and success in Asher was very much an individual matter. The extended family was a professional network, not a communal enterprise, and wealth, responsibility, profits, and expenses always accrued to individuals, not the family as a whole. There was no common fund among the household, and there are even instances of loan contracts with interest being made between members of the same family. This general principle is also how women, who were elsewhere in Mesopotamia purely dependents of their men, were able to establish independent accounts and go into business themselves, though social norms would restrict them from growing too independent from their husbands. Loans were common, and indeed loan contracts are one of the most common sorts of documents that have survived to this day, and tend to be relatively small and short-term. Interest rates were absolutely usurious, with the standard rate among Assyrians being fixed by the colonial office at 30% annually, and rates for money loaned to Anatolians being even higher than this. Though they were not easy terms, the existence of financial instruments such as loans and joint stock companies speak to the sophisticated and complex economy that swirled around the international trading system of the Middle Bronze Age and which fueled shockingly high trade volumes, considering that the Anatolian, Assyrian, and Iranian routes were overland on foot and donkey, with no formal road construction anywhere in the region. All this wealth flowing into Asher created large houses and large open-air markets, probably covered by huge cloth roofs, though such impermanent structures of course left no archaeological traces. By the prosperous end of the old Assyrian period, quite a lot could be purchased in these markets from nearly every corner of the known world. Households sold the excess textiles produced by the women of the house in exchange for silver and copper, while craftsmen would sell pretty much anything that could be crafted to a fairly prosperous clientele. But the most common thing purchased in these markets was the food that fed every household, rich and poor. Bread and beer was the staple of every household, though contrary to popular belief, the beer was consumed mostly for taste, calories, and sometimes inebriation, not because of any defect in the water, which came from the Tigris River and was widely consumed. Grain in general was processed to make porridge, which required the least amount of processing, flatbread, which was just baked water and flour, or a form of sourdough bread, since yeast had not yet been identified and isolated. Frying was possible in sesame oil or animal lard, though that oil could also be used for washing in the same manner as ancient Greeks, by applying a thin layer of oil to the skin, then removing it with a scraper. An assortment of fruits and vegetables would spice things up, including leeks, onions, grapes, pomegranates, dates, and many sorts of nuts. The herbs included cumin, coriander, mustard, and sometimes garlic, though that last may have been fairly high status. Both salt and honey were used, though presumably not together, as preservatives as well as condiments. Meat in the ancient world was far less common in ancient diets than modern, and ranged from a few times a week for the wealthiest to once a month or less for poorer individuals. Sheep, 
oxen, pork, fish, and shrimp were the options, and we typically hear of them being stewed or grilled. Beer was the beverage of choice and was likely very thick, almost liquid bread, being made of barley, malt, and beer bread, macerated and fermented in water. Wine was also appreciated, imported from Cappadocia, though much rarer and probably more expensive as well. Drunkenness was an occasional complaint in letters. These options would have been available to all, but the poorer you got, the more you relied on beer and bread, and the less frequently you could enjoy the rest of this listing. It has been a welcome change to talk about the little people of a city-state rather than exclusively the kings, even if those little people were usually the city's wealthy merchants. And there are still plenty more little details to fill in. But we have hundreds of years of glorious Assyrian history left in this podcast, and this episode is already a bit long. And so next week we will move back towards more conventional history, though we will move fairly quickly and be covering a much wider area of civilization. So join us next week as we look at political history for the entire Upper Mesopotamian region, Syria and Assyria, and lay the groundwork for a great northern empire builder and the start of the Upper Mesopotamian Empire. Thank you for listening.